every day those who are white presenting in the U.S. Jewish community move through the community with ease and grace. And that ease and grace is a privilege that we are not afforded or accorded because of our black and brown skin. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community in general. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Ilana Kaufman, the executive director of the Jews of Color Initiative. Her work at the locus of Jewish community, racial equity, and justice is anchored by the voices and experiences of Jews of color and is focused on grant making, research and field building, and community education. Ilana, who recently spoke at our JFN West Regional Conference, has been a guest on NPR's All Things Considered and Code Switch, and has published articles in different publications. Prior to joining the Jews of Color Initiative, Ilana was the East Bay Public Affairs and Civic Engagement Director at the San Francisco Jewish Community Relations Council. As Senior Schusterman Fellow, Ilana received her BA in Sociology for California State Humboldt and her MA in Educational Pedagogy from Mills College. In this episode, Ilana and I discuss the movement for racial justice, how COVID is impacting Jews of color, and how the Jewish community can do a better job of including and serving Jews of color, and more broadly, managing and empowering an increasingly diverse Jewish population. Take a listen. Thank you, Ilana, for being with us. And we're recording this in the middle of month six, I think, of the pandemic. How did it affect you and your work? Um, it's funny. Here we are in month six, and I remember the day that the San Francisco Bay Area, where I'm sitting right now in Berkeley, California, I remember the day that we went on shelter in place because I was on the phone with a funder and that call got interrupted by an emergency call from the state of California and the county of Alameda, letting us know that by 9 p.m. that night, we would be required to be on shelter in place. And so it's affected our work in a couple of ways. Of course, first of all, it's made our team one that is now distributed entirely in a much more formal way. And so um, as a, a, a small organization, we now have five full-time team members and a terrific half-time communications colleague. It, we benefit from being together. And so the first piece is that we were scattered um, and had to relocate and sort of reorient our work style to one that is digital and virtual, which is something everyone around the planet is experiencing. You know, the pandemic has also affected our work in terms of our grant making. We had a grant strategy prepared for this year. And as we were making grants um, around building out Jewish communal leaders of color um, in terms of fellowships and in terms of internships, in terms of funding research projects focused on Jews of color, we also became aware of two strains of need directly related to the pandemic. 
One is that we were hearing from our organizations that because of some of the hiring dynamics, including some of our JOC, our Jews of Color colleagues being newer to organizations, they were the first people who um, were let go of organizations. And there was a a lot of vulnerability for our our colleagues of color out there in terms of our our work environments. And I want to just say, like, I know that um, employment status is vulnerable for many people in the community. And the impact of COVID has disproportionately affected Black and Brown folks in this country, including Jews of color. And so the, the first kind of emergency round of grants we made were to organizations focused on retaining Jews of color staff who had become particularly vulnerable because of the pandemic. And so we made six grants, uh, uh, particularly around retaining staff. And then we ended up making more than 70 grants for individuals who were affected by COVID through our COVID-19 relief fund. And so uh, it affected our grant making, both in terms of making institutional grants. We have never made individual grants as a Juice of Color initiative because we're focused on building out the field. But because of COVID, we ended up developing and deploying our own COVID-19 relief fund. And so those are some of the ways that we've been affected by the by the pandemic in terms of our work. And did it affect you personally a lot? I mean, it still is. It's not, we're not out of the bush yet. I mean, it, I think it affects all of us personally. For me, Ilana Kaufman sitting in Berkeley, I have a 14-year-old. And so it's dramatically upended her life um, as a scholar, as an athlete, as a social person, as a person who um, is, a, is assigned to the sixth grade class at religious school as their teacher's assistant. I've had family directly affected by the virus. And so it's affected me on that personal level. It's affected my ability to be planful in terms of navigating the intersection of my work, how I have maintained and think about um, my own kind of personal health and well-being. And it's put at risk, quite frankly, you know, the long-term plans I've made as a, as a professional, as an individual, as a colleague in terms of our life plans, you know, like I was born and raised in San Francisco, California. Um, I come from a single parent family. I've had the privilege of having access to a fine, fine formal education and having amazing jobs like my one at the Federation of San Francisco, the Jewish Community Relations Council here at the Jews of Color Initiative. COVID has made highly vulnerable for all of us, including my family, um, life plans in terms of long-term Geography, long-term planning, long-term finances. Sure it did. Times of fragility, but also times of resilience. Indeed. Indeed. And, but tell me, tell me a little bit about your, your life journey. Did you ever think you would be doing what you're doing now? No, no, no. I mean, if you, my life journey, you know, I, um, I was a very mediocre student um, in my K-12 education. And I had very little interest in academics and I had some learning differences that made me think I was not as academically competent as I am. It took me a long time to find resonance in subject matter. For example, we would read the grapes of wrath in school. And I remember just being puzzled by why we were ever reading this until an instructor drew parallels between like the plight of, of the characters in the grapes of wrath um, and the experiences of migrating African-Americans, for example. Um, and so I was um, intensely challenged as a student. Um, I thought I wanted to be an attorney. There was a moment where I thought I wanted to be a rabbi, um, but I was never in my life there were no female rabbis and um, my age and stage, I'm 48. And so my age and stage aligned with 
some of the emergence of women becoming ordained as rabbis in the United States. And so it was not a career path that was, was put out in front of me. I was trained as a, as a classroom teacher. My master's is in educational pedagogy. And so, um, and for those of you who work with me, like, you know, I love to think about design and complex problem solutions, and that's where that comes from. And I spent the first 20 years of my career as a high school history teacher and school administrator and um, loved, loved, loved my job, but wanted to be home more. Um, And so retired from that life into the world of of Jewish communal philanthropy. I will end this, this answer by saying, Um, When I was at the San Francisco Federation learning how to be a program officer, there was an inflection point at that time of black and brown folks being disproportionately harmed and killed in the U.S. at that time at Federation. And I remember sitting at Federation and I was looking out of a window um, at the San Francisco Federation. And for those of you who haven't been there, it looks out on Mission Street, it's kind of adjacent to Market Street. And there's a lot happening in the downtown area. I remember looking out my window and there was a Black Lives Matter march coming by the window and I was inside the Federation building, making grants to Jewish communal organizations. And I said to myself, why is it that there's no intersection of Jewish community philanthropy and racial justice and Jews of color? And if I could just do one good thing in this world, it would be to intersect Jewish community philanthropy and racial justice. And that was the first time I had had that thought. And I had no idea I would end up being the executive director of the Jews of Color Initiative. (laughs) Talk to me about... What is it to be a Jew of color in the United States? I mean, I can't speak for all Jews of color. I know a lot. I am one. I live with one. I mean, I think it's like everything in in some ways, it's nothing, right? Like on a good day, we just get to be whole. We get to be who we are and we navigate the world with our spiritual selves intact as people of color in our fullness, right? And so like seeing the world through lenses that are both multiracial, but also spiritually grounded in Jewish ideas and philosophy and text. Like on a good day, that's who we are, or that's who I am anyway. And that's the context from which I do everything and I get to be whole. However, sort of like that ideal is ensconced in a context of racism. Right. Like the United States was founded upon racism. This is not this is nothing that should excite the listeners. Like um, we all know this. And this country, you know, required segregating and stratifying people of color from white folks to create an economic system that allowed for the development of the United States of America. Kind of full stop. And while nobody in this country, let me let me qualify that. While most folks in this country have no intention of being racist or perpetuating racist ideas, They're in the air we breathe, it's in the water we drink, it's in the rain that falls out of the sky. And so as people of color who are also Jewish, many times we are um, seen first as people of color and our Judaism is not seen. And that's particularly problematic in Jewish contexts where um, the folks in the environment don't imagine that there are Jews of color or are not thinking in multiracial ways. Um, It's problematic and difficult because we live in a country that is racist and targets black and brown people. For those of us who are black and brown, we experience all of that targeting too, right? So we're not exempt from the headwinds of racism. Um, We experience all of those plus the headwinds that come with anti-Semitism or other identity oppressions. But what it's also like is, is, is being like inspired because I think in some ways, Jews of color are the embodiment of the promise of the United States. Like this country promises us a multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic, multi-faith reality. 
And our strength is only going to be when we see ourselves as that. And Jews of color embody that reality and embody that ideal. And while on the one hand, perhaps we're kind of the multiracial canaries in the coal mine, on the other hand, we're expressions of the promise of this nation in its sort of greatest form. And in some ways, I think like we are expressions of the promise of the Jewish community in the U.S. in its sort of most energized um, ideal. Um, and that is very, very exciting. So you experience racism on a daily basis, you experience racism in the Jewish community. And even when the people that are expressing, you know, that racism don't, don't really think they're being racist. You know, you may walk into a, into a synagogue and somebody may ask, oh, how come you're Jewish? And they don't really mean it in their hearts as a bad thing. They don't think of themselves as, as racist. I mean, I think it's, it's more a question of people not being aware of how things are, are perceived on the other side of the racial divide. Right. So, you know, and I always find myself sort of saying, okay, instead of making people feel guilty or telling them you're a racist, what can one do to sort of empathetically educate those folks? I mean, I'm not talking about the outright racist. I'm not talking about the folks right. that just are product of their environment and just they're not used to see a person of color in, in shul. And right, when they right. see one, they're genuinely interested in knowing how is that person connected. Not Absolutely. Curious. Yeah, they're curious. They're like, if I go to that person and say, hey, you're being a racist, he's going to say, what are you talking about? Like, I just... Right. I mean, I hear you, Anderson. Yes. Okay. Like, they don't intend to be racist. But at the same time, there is kind of this permission to be ignorant or permission to be less than engaged because there's an assumption and sort of an, and a commitment to the narrative that all Jews are white and a presupposition that all Jews are white. And so, I mean, we live in the United States and I kind of feel like every Jew in the United States should assume that Jews can't possibly be all white because we are not exceptional to the physics of being a multiracial community. So there is kind of like a, I hear you, and it's not an intentional racism, but there is a bit of, mm, do I want to, do I dare say academic laziness? or an absence of rigor but, about who we should assume is in our community. Because look, but why would we all be white? Like we're only 2% of the US population. We've been in the United States since the 1600s as Jews, if not earlier. And this country is based on people of different backgrounds commingling. So like why, and how, I mean, we know how we got to this narrative that all Jews are white, but like why would we even think that given the context? Right, but people don't even, think of that people just relate to what they are used to it's not right. that somebody goes and say oh we should be we shouldn't be like i've been coming to shul for 50 years right. i've never seen a black or brown person and, right. and and by the way the same happens to me when they ask me about my accent right. you know it's not a visible thing but it's an audible thing and people That's ask right. me you know so where are you from right i say from brooklyn no no where you're <laughs> really from right you know like right but i can say to this person, you're insensitive and bigoted or whatever, or I can say, or I can do something different that sort of shows people in a, I would say, caring way that the community is not the oh, image right. community they have in their head. Right. And I, you know, and I'm like, and I, and I agree with you about that too. I think it's important that we interrogate how it is that we got ourselves to a place as a U.S. Jewish community where we think we're all white. Like, I think that's very important. And... 
yeah, we've done a terrible job of educating ourselves about who we really are. And so every time we go to shul or every time we go to like the Jewish deli or every time we go to a Judaica shop or every time we go to a JCC, although those tend to be more racially diverse because of the gyms and um, the other services that are offered, or every time we go to a Jewish summer camp, we do go in or a board of directors at any Jewish organization or a JCRC, Jewish Community Relations Council or, or a Jewish Federation we go in thinking that there are going to be reflections of this traditional narrative of who Jews are in the United States. And right. then we enter that space, not stopping ourselves or slowing ourselves down to go, okay, that can't possibly be true. And so when I enter the shul or when I enter the JCRC or when I enter the Jewish summer camp, we have to stop and go, where are all the Jews of color, right? Like we haven't done that work as a community. And it's not about being an intentional racist. And it's not about being like a wicked white supremacist. What it is, is that we have been um, awfully languid in our community about understanding and thinking about ourselves as multiracial. And so we have no structural discipline to enter spaces, assuming our conceptual framework is one that is multiracial. And so the Jew of color and shul surprises people and then creates a curiosity. And it's a well-intentioned curiosity in a context where we as a national community should just be more educated. The other thing I will say is like the response is not to sort of wag our finger at our, our fellow Jew and say, you're racist. Our response is to say like, oh, I'm here because like I'm here with my family and friends, right? And I'm here because the Jewish community is multiracial. And I'm here because you and I are actually family. And I know that, but you maybe don't know that. I'll end by saying, and the burden, of course, can't be on the Jew of color to do that. Because we deserve to be able to go daven without interruption. We deserve to be able to go to shul without being racially profiled. We deserve to go to Kol Nidre and do our deep work without being challenged about why we're there so that it interrupts our work. And so all of that needs to happen at the same time. And Jews, in a way, in general, should have that mental chip to understand that. Like I remember right. growing up in mostly non-Jewish environments, and I'm always called to be an ambassador of the Jews. You know, if I happen to be walking down the street with a kippah, I mean, I'm talking about Latin cultures that are much more, you know, forthcoming so people look up what's the little hat for that's right like who gave you right to come and interrupt me and ask me why am i you know but but you don't because you understand that that person that stopped you is not like he's he's really curious like it's right and i also say it doesn't affect people of color i think that when you talk about the diversity of the community if you ask somebody to draw a jewish community they will actually do something that is ashkenazi that is white. That's that, right. You're leaving aside that not only Jews of color, you're leaving aside non-Ashkenazi Jews. That's you're, right. You're living outside, even, you know, Haredi Jews. You know, they're, yeah. not, they're not part That's of the right. conversation. That's right. And I think a couple of things. One is um, I've been in a number of, of Jewish environments where there might be a Haredi, a Chabad community member there. Um, and it might be like a, an, an organizational leadership environment where the Jews of color and the Haredi are aligned because there's been a shared experience of being marginalized or different in the community. And the other thing I want to say is this kind of like narrative that all Jews are white and Ashkenazi has negatively impacted non-Jewish people of color too, because collectively 
the whole nation doesn't know that there are Jews of color or is just emerging around their understanding that there are Jews of color. This is not a phenomenon of understanding that's unique in the Jewish community. And so the other piece is like, I've had experiences where I was in a shared office environment and I had like a little sign on my desk that kind of said who I was and who I worked for. And a number of African-American colleagues who were not Jewish would like come by my table, my desk and look at me and the name of the organization and be kind of puzzled. And then finally, one of the colleagues sat down and just sort of said, like, I just got to ask you, like, you work for the Jews. Like, what's with what's with a sister working for the Jews? And I'm like, I'm one of the Jews. And that conversation opened up a whole conversation about Jewish community diversity, movement building, shared alliances, how we can be allies for each other, shared experiences of racism and anti-Semitism, how we're rooted in white supremacy. And so elevating the knowledge of the diversity of Jewish community is not just good for the Jews. It's good for all of us because it deepens our relationships and our our ability to work together. 100%. And, you know, for me, the, the moment of realization was when uh, April Baskin, who was running the um, Audacious Hospitality program at URJ, she gave, because one of these guys who I would never think of myself as racist, right? Or, uh, you know, and yet she gave me a checklist of, have anybody ever asked you, what were you doing at Ashur? Has anybody ever confused you with the help? Then it hits home. I said, wow, these people actually have a whole world of life experiences that are totally alien for me. Uh, it would never occur for me to have a conversation with a 16-year-old son that he has to keep his wallet on the dashboard. because, right. And that's an experience that every you know, black parent has. They have to that's have right. the talk. For me, the talk was about girls. It wasn't about not that's being right. shot in a traffic stop. That's right. That's right. And Jews of color, I, my daughter, my 14 year old and I had a version of the talk before she went out on her bike one day without like adults with her and talking about, you know, how to interact with police. If she's got on a Black Lives Matter shirt, how they might interact with her around it. And so, so, so maybe. So, yeah. So, so maybe helping white folks to be in the shoes of a black person for a day kind of, kind of thing. That's what did it for me, it, you know, right. much more than, as you said, wagging the finger, oh, you're this and this country was built on racism. Maybe that's all is true, but it doesn't bring it home in the same way that, let me tell you about how my life is different right. because of the color of my skin. We are at a point generationally where people of color and Jews of color should feel intensely proximate for white presenting Jews and white identified Jews who don't think they have people of color in their lives, right? Like almost a half of California and state of California are people of color. By 2042, half of this country is going to be people of color. And so everything tells us that the Jewish community should be multiracial and there should be people of color in our community environment. 20% of US Jewish families identify as multiracial and have people of color in their families. And so when we think about that, if one is Jewish and thinks of themselves as white and thinks they only have white folks in their community in terms of proximate relationships, I would suggest they're probably like one grandbaby or one niece or a nephew away from having people of color in their lives. Yeah. And so it's really, really important that we start to think in this way because it will be grandparents of kids of color who those kids of color are going to be having the talk and they're also Jewish. What does the Jewish version of that talk look like, right? Like what if we wrapped up that talk in Jewish values? 
What would that mean for our community? So part of the cost of this is it takes away from the opportunities to integrate Jewish life into how we're thinking about racism in the United States. But the other thing I want to say is it's really, really important that when we don't have the privilege of proximity, that we have the capacity either through a checklist or engaging our moral imagination, but to imagine lives outside of ourselves and to really close our eyes and say, now, like if we had been a black person walking into this Federation building and we didn't know the security officers (laughs) and we weren't comfortable with this process, what might it be like for us just to get to a meeting and really, really go deep? Yes. The same way of doing the exercise of, sitting on a wheelchair and and going to an airport. That's right. And in some ways, it's only ways we can build right. empathy without the true experience or the proximate relationship. So you said something that sort of set off a, a little bit in my head. You said people who identify as white. And we had, like lately, in the last few weeks, a string of people who were basically, quote-unquote, lying that they were black and in fact they were white and part of me says well that's weird and part of me says is it like we live in a time of where people define who they are so like who defines you or or let me phrase the question differently is being black just a matter of the color of your skin or is it just a choice that comes together with a whole different things that I could say I consider myself black because Or is it like living in the United States that has impressed upon us a definition of an experience and an identity associated with being of color or associated with being white? I love this question. I mean, a couple of things. I I try, I put a lot of effort into saying white identified, white presenting, um, because I know that race is a social construct. Hmm. I know that race as a concept is real. And I know the impact of race and racism in the United States are real. I hold all of those in my head and in my spirit at one time. I know as a multiracial person, as a mixed race person who's black, but also my mom is white. My mom is her parents. My grandparents are from Poland and Romania. My mom was raised with modern Orthodox. I know that my identity um, comes with privilege because I'm light skinned as a black person. And so I know that there's something about race that slides along a continuum of privilege. And I'm aware of that. Um, as a scholar of history, I know that my grandparents, when they came to, uh, they actually came from Canada, but they were not labeled as white because they were from Poland and Romania. So I know that whiteness in the United States is an evolving concept that is based on politics rather than reality or rather than like one actual ethnic or cultural or racial background. And so I know whiteness has, the definition of whiteness has changed over time. And I know that Jews who have white skin privilege when confronted by a white supremacist are at risk of harm or death the same way a black person when they're confronted by a white supremacist is at risk of harm or death. And so I know that in a white supremacist setting, Jewish identity will not protect white people who are Jewish. And so I think that we have to be accountable I think white presenting people and people who have white skin privilege have to be accountable to the construct of race and racism in the United States because white folks benefit from it or those who are white presenting benefit from it. But I also think that we need to hold the complexity of racial identity for Jews 
particularly for white folks, for our Mizrahi and Sephardi family members, for our, our, our colleagues from Latin America who have a different experience and then they come to the U.S. and are confronted with a racial construct. And I'll end by saying, yeah, I think it's problematic when white folks adopt an identity that's not theirs, um, because in the U.S., race is real. The construct of race and racism are invented but race and racism are real. And so like when a white Jewish woman from Kansas, I think, adopts an identity of being black and then uses that adopted identity to access jobs, scholarships, awards, life experiences, social, cultural, political, and educational networks, it's a violation. And I would say it's even worse than cultural appropriation because it's stealing. Um, it's stealing a culture that is not yours. But I want to end with something, which is this. I think one of the costs and the tragedies of racism in the United States is that it also marginalizes white people. And I'm using air quotes for people who are listening. For a white Jewish woman to not have access to her own identity and her own ethnic and racial experience and to be able to get steeped in that and feel proud of that to the point where she abandons her identity and takes on an entirely different identity makes me wonder like what she wasn't proud of about being Jewish and white. Right. And did she know about her own ethnic background and the struggles of her people and her grandparents' story and our 5,000 year history and what happened that she couldn't be steeped in that? And so I think one of the costs of racism is also like reducing white identity um, in ways that make people sometimes not want to be white or not want to be who they are but, with a European background. Right. But I don't think if there is such a thing as a white identity. I mean, yes, you will have in Montana these towns called whiteopias where people, you know, live only among white people and think that they are playing out the values of whiteness, but I, I, I don't know what the, I'm white. I don't know what the values of whiteness are. Yeah. I hear you. And I'm not saying there are values of whiteness, but I'm saying that the U S has reduced whiteness into kind of simple sort of stereotypical expressions. And in the Jewish community, that reduction of whiteness has been into like Ashkenormativity. And some people think like, Jewish identity is this version of kind of white Ashkenazi normativity, but it's so much richer than that and so much broader than that. And so I think like, sure, we think about whiteness in Montana, but we need to think about whiteness being reduced in the Jewish community too. And Jews of European backgrounds deserve to have their ethnic identity celebrated and known. Jews of different uh, Middle Eastern, North African, right? But, they don't, but, but wait, wait, wait. They don't think of that identity in terms of whiteness. I think of my identity in terms of Ashkenazi, Polish, eating gefilte fish, or right. speaking Yiddish. Race doesn't factor in that calculation. Right. But it's almost like a, um, thinking about film and the negative we think about all of that as Jewish identity. It's really Jewish white identity. You may not think of it that way. And the fact that kind of the national audience thinks of Jewish identity as this reduced kind of bagels and cream cheese, that's a loss for the Jewish community too, because our ethnic identity, the diversity of our ethnic identity is much broader than that and should be known and celebrated by Jews and non-Jews alike. Let me go to the term that you, you mentioned a couple of times. That is a term that doesn't sit very well with me personally, is the idea of privilege. Like, I happen to be white, but I don't feel privileged at all. Like, I grew up in a very poor family. I'm an immigrant, and 
suffered discrimination as a Jew and as an immigrant every time I speak. So I don't think that I was privileged in any way. And when you talk to a white person and you call them privileged, aren't you kind of shooting your own food in the sense that I know what you mean. I know the fact of being white on the negative did not subject it to the same type of discrimination that I so if on top of all the things that happened to me, I was black, I would have had it even worse. Is that a privilege or is that a right? Meaning, doesn't the language of privilege obscure the fact that not being discriminated is not a privilege, it's a right, it's a basic human right. Not being denied a mortgage is not a privilege, it's a right. I'm struggling with the idea of framing this in the language of privilege rather than in the language of equal rights. Because whether it's true or not that white people have privilege, it doesn't matter. Right. Ultimately. right. So no, I love the way you're framing it. And I almost want to be like, it's cool then. Let's not talk about privilege, but let's talk about denying and over sort of being over generous with the allocation of human of basic human rights. Then you, I mean, if we want to name it, then let's name it. But the the vehicle of of disproportionately heaping those resources on one group over the other whether that you call that vehicle privilege or human rights, that vehicle exists, right? And so I hear you, like as an immigrant, as somebody who grew up poor, you've had a whole series of experiences. And in the United States, I'm going to guess every time you look at your board or every time you look at kind of like most of the leaders of Jewish community foundations, you see reflections of yourself. And that must feel very validating. I don't ever see a reflection of myself with my colleagues, I never, ever walk into a room and see another person of color, except for Jamie Allison from the Walter and Lee's Haas Fund, in a leadership, an executive leadership role in a Jewish community foundation. You or any other white colleague getting to see expressions of themselves is a privilege because it gives you a sense of being a role model. You get role models, you get your identity affirmed, you might have shared experiences because of that. You certainly won't have a head when walking into the office because of how one presents. And so like, I hear you and I'm happy to kind of think about replacing the language with the depriving people of human rights. And I get privileges being light skin. I talk over and over again about, I don't want to go into any more community spaces where I see all these multiracial people, but we don't see dark skin, black and brown folks and colleagues in there. Because then I am contributing to colorism because of the privilege I have because I'm light skinned. And so I hear you, but like this whole country is based on disproportionate allocation of privilege. And it's like, it's in the air we breathe. So we don't see it and we don't think about it until somebody slows us down and gives us a checklist or an example. But every day, those who are white presenting in the U.S. Jewish community move through the community with ease and grace. And that ease and grace is a privilege that we are not afforded or accorded because of our black and brown skin. It shows up when we try to go into buildings. It shows up when people ask us why we are somewhere, like literally, why are you here? It comes up every time somebody is curious about us when they should actually know that Jews of color exist. Every one of us in this country has privileges based on how masculine or feminine presenting we are, how black or brown or white presenting we are, how articulate and air quotes we are, the benefits of our formal education. All of it gives us privileges. I think we have to have some comfort in saying that, or we can also talk about denying human rights. I don't know. I want to think about that, but I think the privileges are real. 
Yeah, I mean, so for me, it's not a question of whether they're real or not. Like, objectively, the person who just smashed her finger with a with a hammer trying to hang a picture is better off than the person with terminal cancer. But it, that doesn't help him when he just smashed his finger in the that's right with a hammer and with so much dislocation that's and suffering. Right in the United States. And if somebody, the moment I smashed my finger, somebody would come to me and says, oh, your pain is not real because look at the other guy who has cancer, God forbid. It would irritate me. It would say, my pain is real. You've just made, you've just made the argument for why Black Lives Matter and why we should say Black Lives Matter instead of saying all lives matter. Because the particular experience of the person whose finger was just smashed matters and we can try to make it universal, but it denies them the right to their smashed finger experience. You have just articulated the experience for why we say Black Lives Matter and not All Lives Matter. Let's talk about this for a minute, about Black Lives Matter. What are your thoughts on this? Let's phrase it differently. I think that the Jewish community, in its overwhelming majority, kind of agrees with the principle of Black Lives Matter, right? They say, of course, and people I don't think would have any problem naming that as Black Lives Matter. But I do see every day the, the uneasiness that exists with Black Lives Matter as a, as a movement with the anti-Israel uh, elements within that movement. So a lot of folks are kind of perplexed. They want to support the movement for racial justice, right? Uh, but they are worried of associating themselves with those elements, right? So what would you tell to these folks? Okay, like a couple of things. First, I wanted to say like, the audience needs to know, and I know many of you know this, like there's the Black Lives Matter movement, and then there is the movement for Black Lives. And they are separate and distinct movements. If you Google them, they are totally separate. It is the movement for Black Lives that published the platform with anti-Zionist or anti-Israel language in it in 2017. It was not the Black Lives Matter movement. The Black Lives Matter movement is focused on ending violence against Black people. Full stop. The movement for Black Lives is a platform and policy entity. Okay. And so I just want to like really clarify that. That is, we should do a better job at telling that to folks. Right. Right. But in 2017, when the platform came out, some of our community leaders with too much enthusiasm and not enough information made public statements that misidentified the organization. Full stop. It's our fault. Okay, so then the other thing I want to say is like, I'm listening to you and I, I totally understand your frame and your question. And as the, at the same time, I'm sitting here as a black person thinking like, why are we having an intellectual conversation about whether or not my life matters? And yeah, why no, are we have, no, no, no. And I know that's not what you're saying on this, but I just yeah, want to like, yeah. and this is about proximity. Like, for those of us who are actually black or have black people in our families, this is not an intellectual exercise. Like this is like, of course we are part of a movement because this is who we are as a nation. And this is the right thing as family members and part of a bigger movement. So if one has hesitation about it, one should ask themselves, like I must have a lot of distance between my own experience and the safety and the life experiences of black and Brown people because even the fact that I get to entertain this conversation in an intellectual way means that it's not intimate to me. And that should be a, a pink or red flag in general, right. which is the it's, wrong It's again the question about never having to have the talk, quote-unquote, right. about That's right. Now, having said that, have, like, we all know that there are some Black people who are anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist, and I'm going to separate those two things out. We know there are Jewish people who are racists and white supremacists. We know that, too. And so, like... 
I think we need to clarify who we're talking about and which movement we're talking about. I think we need to have evidence to reinforce our perspectives and opinions. And then I think we need to ask ourselves, like, what role do we want to play in making sure that black and brown people are not murdered? And that could be Jewish people too, right? And what's the role we want to play in making sure Jews are safe and we're fighting anti-Semitism? And that's a different question. And what's the role we want to play in educating people about Israel and Zionism? And that's a different question. And I know I'm like, I get the luxury of slowing down the conversation. But if we were to do a replacement test and say to ourselves, like, we think that this effort to like keep Jews safe and support responding to anti-Semitism is really important. But sometimes like the Jews make me nervous and sometimes they make us uncomfortable. If we did a replacement test, we would never tolerate ourselves. Right. And I think that the other question then is, by not engaging with the movement, we actually don't have a say in those conversations. Like, maybe we should be in those rooms. That's right. We should be in those rooms. We're actually leaving the field for the BDF activists to be the only voice that some folks in the African-American community listen to uh, when it comes to Israel. That's right. And we just need to assume like this nation does a terrible job at general public education. And I'm somebody who went to public schools and is an educator. We need to assume that everybody in this nation has very little education about Jews, Judaism and Israel. Only 25 percent of people <laughs> in this country heard of heard of the Holocaust. Right. So then what about what we know makes us think that people are going to arrive to this conversation highly educated and informed to be able to have like a cogent, clear conversation about Zionism, Jews and Israel. So we also should just assume like, of course, people are going to be undereducated, including Jews, um, because we do a terrible job of education in this country. And so maybe we should start there. And the other thing that is interesting about what you're saying is that beyond the issue of, of Black Lives Matter, generally in terms of working with other communities, we don't in the Jewish community have a very good mental mechanism to say we can agree on some things and disagree on others. That's or right. rather, what makes it so that we can't work with another group? That's right. You know, we work with uh, Christian evangelicals on right. Israel. And, and I'm sure that many of those, not myself included, who sort of embrace Christian evangelicals, don't agree with many of their stands on things like women's rights. Or the fact that Christian evangelicals have affection for Israel because they think that it's going to be for them someday and not Jews. I mean, like the irony that we in the U.S. Jewish community support. But, but that's the point. But what's saying, <laughs> right. Somebody gave me this uh, example that I found really interesting. He says, you know, when my father was hiding from the Nazis and this Austrian farmer took them in, they didn't ask him if they believed in the second coming. They took them in and they accepted to be taken in because they were in danger. So I'm bringing that as an example of, right. you know, we found historically forms of working with some groups with which we disagree on anything right. from theology to lifestyle. Right. And yet we agree. So I'm wondering, can we do the same in terms of Black Lives Matter? Can we say, listen, I don't agree with your vision of society. I don't agree with what you think about entitlements and tax right. policy or whatever. Right. We think that black people shouldn't be shot because of being black. Maybe that's a place to start. Yes. And I think the idea of agreeing on middle ground and operating from that space is something that we need to apply to Black Lives Matter. We do it in many other spaces, to your point. 
Right. We do it in this democratic republic that has an electoral college when our voice should matter. We, we tolerate all kinds of sort of middle grounds. And so the question is not like, shouldn't we? The question is, what is getting in the way right. of us doing it? And let's make really sure that it's not racism. Right. Let's make really sure it's not that we're having a reaction to black people. You know, this is sort of a philosophical thought, but I think it's at the essence of some of the malaise in the society today. You know, sort of the modern social contract was all about eliminating differences. Right. The idea was to say, you know, a strict separation between the private and the public. Right. And the private, you know, sort of your religion was the private, your sexual orientation was private, don't ask, don't tell. Right. And in the public square you sort of adjust to a common to a minimum common denominator and we tolerate quote unquote that you do whatever you want in your private life but something happens in the 21st century first of all that common denominator is no longer possible and secondly folks actually don't want to be tolerated they want to fully express who they are Exactly. And, exactly. And that sounds great, but it is a recipe for tension because well, I want to fully express who I am, but so does the white supremacist, you know? Right, yeah. right. But it's a recipe for tension in a context where that common denominator only serves a certain group of people and lets that certain group of people be whole and express themselves however they want to. And either everybody aligns with that common denominator or the tension erupts when each one of us wants to be who we are and we have no capacity or muscle developed yet to be diverse and to really let everybody be who they are in a diverse country. And so like, is the paradigm one of supremacy? And I'm not using the term white supremacy, but kind of like normative cultural supremacy. And as long as everybody kind of aligns and bands there will be fine. Or should the common denominator be a capacity to support the diversity of this country, which means we got to learn how to like let a lot of different people be who they are in a way where everybody can thrive. Right, but, but normativity in the modern sense, in the 19th and 20th century terms, it had racist undertones probably, but in many countries, it was a good faith effort to try to manage diversity. Like you uh, went from the- I mean, I got to just push back as a historian. I mean, like the, the history of colonial colonizing activity across the globe has created a sense of normativity that expects people of difference to fall into. I mean, we've seen this in Europe. We've seen this in Africa. And the U S is like the normativity is based on being colonized and sure like colonization creates order, but it also subjugates the, the original peoples or other peoples. And that's part of the tension. Think about the French revolution. There was no colonialism down there. There was the French colonial exploration is, is later than the French revolution. The French revolution basically says everybody has basic rights and basic obligations. Right. It doesn't matter. You're Jewish, be Jewish in your home. We don't care. As long as you don't try to impose it on me, you want to be Catholic, be Catholic in your home. We don't want to. It was an attempt of holding together a diverse society that was based on a normativity that tried to be as neutral and as tolerant as possible. Right. And that is what it's broken now. If 1789, the Jews would have said, no, 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 no. We don't want 
to celebrate Judaism in the privacy of our own communities. We want to have it in the public square. So probably the whole democratic experiment wouldn't have worked. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. How can funders be helpful, be allies, be supportive of greater inclusion in the Jewish community of Jews of color? I love this question. So a couple of things. One is, again, like Jews are just 2%, 2.2% of the U.S. population and sort of our work in philanthropy kind of mirrors the same landscape. And so there's a whole nother 98% of colleagues outside of the Jewish world who are also doing philanthropy who are disproportionately more steeped in diverse environments. And so I think all of us as directors or leaders in philanthropy or staff members should not only be engaging in professional development and learning within the Jewish community, but like we should be required to be engaging in professional development and learning outside of the Jewish community. It's just environments that are are more diverse, that have more advanced and quite frankly, nuanced sort of philosophies and strategic planning around diversity and racial justice. There's a lot for us to learn and apply to our own context. So that's one very important thing that doesn't need to wait for Jews of color, doesn't need to wait for anything. Everyone can go do it right now. Number two, philanthropy should be exploring, you know, and they are actively. And so this is about like adding to that momentum. What is it that Jews of color leaders organizations and efforts need. And we do that through inquiry. We do that by relationship building. And we do that by us being in the spaces where Jews of color are. There are Jews of color led and focused organizations and efforts that particularly over Zoom in a pandemic environment are drawing one and two and 300 participants to programs, to events, to religious services. It's all happening. The philanthropy should know about it and be part of it. The third thing I would say is, um, and we've done this at the initiative and we're not perfect, but it's something that we practice every day and work on every day. We try to approach our work of philanthropy differently. We try to have, you know, I mean, first of all, all of our staff are trained in diversity and are as culturally competent as we can be on any given day. And we're constantly working on it. So it's required for us in terms of our work. Um, we have restructured RFPs, our grant processes, our applications to not overly worship the written word and really focus on aligning the organizations and their content with this opportunity and having it be efficient and excellent all at the same time, um, but not be overly burdensome. A number of our colleague philanthropies are doing this. And so we just join them in the effort of having like reporting structures really be about authentic work versus like going on and on and on about like numbers. And I mean, they're all important. Metrics are important, but like organizations authentically expressing their work, reflecting the metrics is where it's at. Like, that's the lovely thing. And so we work on that. The last thing I want to say is like, Jews of color need to see Jews of color in roles of philanthropy. And so what are our colleagues doing out there to develop the next generation of program officers, of fund directors, of presidents and CEOs of foundations to actually be held by colleagues who are Jews of color? And if you just look at the numbers And if we want to like have an environment where we're not looking at our colleagues and going, oh my goodness, 99% of the colleagues in the Jewish philanthropic space are white, but 10 and 20% of our community are people of color. If we want to get out of that very uncomfortable ratio and we should have discomfort with that ratio, we need to intervene 
with leadership development programs focused on philanthropy. There should be fellowships, there should be internships, there should be opportunities to explore and be on grant-making committees. Right. We have an all Jews of color staffed grant-making committee. Our program officers are Jew of color. Like we at the initiative are doing everything we can to train colleagues who are interested in this work in real time, but we cannot be the only one. And so what would it take to invite the other philanthropies to join us in that kind of effort? We would love to see much more of that. And it would be great for Jews of color and for our larger Jewish community. One word about what excites you about the future work of the Field Building Coalition. What's in the quiver there that you're willing to shoot? Oh, I mean, I am so excited by the like reconstructionist rabbinical student who's like developing and connecting JOC Havarot around the country. I'm so excited by the Jews of Color Torah Academy, like leading efforts for Jews of Color to learn Hebrew, to learn text, to learn how to chant Torah. I am so, so excited by the program called Lunar, which are Jews of Color who are Asian, focused on capturing those stories and having that be amplified. I'm so excited by Jutina, and the podcast featuring Latinx Jews and their stories. I'm so excited by the next research project. And like one year from now, presenting to the community the experiences, perspectives, beliefs of Jews of color in the U.S. Jewish community um, to inform organizations and programs. I'm so excited by helping support an episode of a modern Orthodox television program focusing on Jews of color in the modern Orthodox community and the experience of Jews of color who are Orthodox and observant are underrepresented. And so I'm so excited about some of those pieces out there. Um, But mostly I'm excited by, I mean, three years ago when the initiative started, there were a number of voices of Jews of color leaders out there and they are powerful voices. My colleagues like April Baskin, like Yavila McCoy, for example, I'm really excited by the like, 10 and 20 and 30 other voices emerging out there. It's a wonderful thing. And um, I hope every time something interesting and provocative in the Jewish community is happening, um, the voices of Jews of color are amplified and elevated just to help fill the space and expand the ideas. Thank you so much. Good seeing you. I appreciate you. Looking forward to more Anders. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much to Ilana Kaufman. You can learn more about her and the work of the Jews of Color Initiatives at jewsofcolorinitiative.org. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfounders. You can also follow me on Twitter on at Spokoini. I leave you with a quote from philosopher André Bergson. To exist is to change. To change is to mature. To mature is to go on creating oneself endlessly. So keep changing, keep creating yourself, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives.